The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Our scripture reading this morning is Exodus 16, read from heaven. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, They looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay about the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, They said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you the bread for two days. 
Remain, each one of you, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that you may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a a habitable land. (laughs) They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omar is the tenth part of an ephah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that this morning you would help us to hear your word in all of its fullness and that it would reshape us and reshape the way that we live in your world. By your grace and for your glory, Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, good morning, downtown church. Um, is this okay? We're doing okay on this thing? All right. Um, you know, this passage is about going from one place to another. And when you come from one place and you end up in another, sometimes there's some tension because you're still sort of living in the place that you left. So, like, for me, a personal experience would be when I moved out of East Memphis and moved into South Memphis, there were some things that did not make sense to me at first because I was thinking in my East Memphis frame of reference. So the first time someone said to me, man, I haven't seen that guy in a minute, I was like, can we find him? That's 60 seconds ago. He must be nearby, right? But all you South Memphians will know when we say in South Memphis, I haven't seen somebody in a minute, we mean an extended period of time. It's the exact opposite of what I was thinking. Or like when I would invite people to a barbecue, uh, like, hey, you want to come to my house and sit with me and eat for quality face-to-face time? And they'd say, like, yeah, man, make me a plate. I'm like, what are you talking about? Make you a plate. Okay? Now, some of y'all don't know what I'm talking about. But in South Memphis, a lot of times when we do barbecues, we make plates for people, and we send them to anybody who can't come. So when somebody said, make me a plate, they weren't saying, I don't want to come to your house. They are saying, yeah, I want to be a part. I didn't get that. I got offended. Uh, but then one day, my, my behind neighbor had a, a barbecue, and all of a sudden, they were like, plate after plate covered in aluminum foil, making them way up the stairs into my house. And then I got it. Right? So in this passage... We're looking at a community that's been in one place, and they're coming into another, and it's creating some tension. To get that tension, we have to understand a little bit about where we came came from. So the people of Israel are coming out of Egypt. Now I want you to think back to what you remember from the Feltboard Sunday School lesson or the last time you read Exodus about what the Israelites' life was like under Pharaoh in Egypt. Now Egypt, in the time that this passage points us to, was the most sophisticated, powerful, prosperous economy on the planet. They were the global superpower, okay? They traded agricultural products on an international stage. When they, like, you know, threw their weight around, people paid attention. And in fact, their prosperity depended on this huge pyramid-shaped, pun intended, uh, bureaucracy, uh, because, you know, every once in a while, every year, the Nile would flood, and was a threat to the crops, but they dug all these canals, and they had this crazy system, and they could take that flood and divert it into their fields, and they would be able to be the most prosperous economy on the planet. That's what Egypt was like. That was like the place they were like where they left. But the other side of the story, as we remember from the book of Exodus, is that it was also deeply oppressive and idolatrous 
and it engaged in genocide and enslavement against the Israelites. Let me just quote a few things we learn uh, in, the, in the chapters of Exodus prior to our passage. We learn that when the people of Israel get to be many, a Pharaoh says, I got an idea to protect us. Let's put taskmasters over them, enslave them, and afflict them with heavy burdens. We learned that what they were doing was building storehouses for Pharaoh. Think about that. You're enslaved so that the people who own you can store up more and more stuff for themselves. We learned that when Israel continues to have children and prosper, that they embark in genocide. Every firstborn or every male child has to be thrown into the river, right? And that crazy Moses thing where he ends up in the basket. And when Pharaoh gets really ticked, because Moses is kind of rocking the boat, his strategy is not to listen to Moses' concerns, but to say, okay, you gotta make the same amount of bricks, but now we're not gonna give you any materials. We're gonna, we're going to make our, our slavery of you even more ruthless, so that we can deal with your descent. Egypt was a terrible place to live for an Israelite, right? We know this. Exodus has spent 12 or 13 chapters telling us this. And Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, comes, and with all these pyrotechnics and fireworks, he, like, kills Pharaoh's firstborn son. He turns the Nile to blood. He brings, like, gnats and all these... It gets dark for, like, days on end, right? And then he divides the Red Sea. And the Israelites, just imagine this. These guys who've been oppressing you, you know, think of the, the noise and the whips and the groaning that is described in the first chapters of Exodus. And then imagine being an Israelite. You're standing on the other side of the Red Sea, and you literally watch God drown all of your enemies in front of you. And now you're free, and they can't get after you anymore. Can you imagine that? And some of the first words that we hear from these guys, right? Some of the first things we hear from these liberated Israelites are things like this. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread in full. For you, Moses and Aaron, have brought us into this wilderness to kill us with hunger. That's the first thing we hear almost from these guys who've just been rescued, right? So what I want to do, I want to work this passage and I want us to see a few things that emerge as we hear this story, and then I want us to think about some ways to apply it in our own lives. And the first thing I want you to see is that when Israel gets liberated, okay, when Israel comes out of Egypt, their imagination is sick with Egypt's disease. Now, when I say imagination, I don't just mean like creative fiction. I mean the way they see the world, what they conceive of as possible, the way they engage with one another and their work is sick with the place they've come from's disease. We know this because their opening words are, God, did you bring us out here to kill us? You know? We can tell that they are thinking in terms of where they've come from rather than where God is taking them. And this isn't actually that hard to imagine when we think about it. I think Matthew's got some pictures for us. Uh, you know, Egypt was a terrible place. Can we go to the next slide? But, you know, it was oppressive and whatever. But it looks like this, okay? This is a picture from Egypt. What's the dominant color motif there? Green, right? Like stuff grows here, right? You're getting beaten up in that field, but there's food in it, okay? Take, go to the next slide. This is where God brings them. <laughs> it's the dominant color motif there. 
brown, right? There's nothing there. There's no water. There's no animals. There's no crops, right? And so as soon as, you know, they wanted to get out of Egypt, but as soon as they leave the green behind, they're going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, how are we going to survive out here? You know? I mean, these guys have been kicked around and beaten up, and they knew it was bad. That's why they cried out to Yahweh. But you know what? They were used to it. And they knew that it wasn't very good for you, but it delivered some of the goods. You could survive in Egypt with all that oppression and grasping and hoarding. And when they come into the wilderness, the question is, can you survive here? Is life even possible? And those of you who are at the men's retreat last night, you heard about how we, we do this, don't we? Like, when we are broken and hurting, we turn to something, right, that isn't very good for us, like maybe it's alcohol or sex or, like, just money or compulsive spending. We turn to something, right? And we know it's enslaving us. We know it's bad for us. But when we think about the alternative, it's like, there's nothing there, right? That sounds like the wilderness. And so these Israelites are beaten and enslaved and kicked around. But when they get out, that's all they know. And so they fall back on it. And so Yahweh says, Yahweh, what's his solution for this? The Lord's solution is to welcome them into Israel. And I like to think of the wilderness as like, maybe you could consider it the wilderness school of economics. Okay, where they'll get their first lesson. Or maybe you could consider it the 40-year Sunday school in the desert. But whatever is happening out here, the Lord's design is for their time in the wilderness, in their engagement with manna, to reshape the, re- the way they see the world and to deal with their fact that their minds are sick with Egypt's disease. We see this right here in the passage when Moses tells them, uh, the Lord, no, sorry, the Lord says to Moses, I'm going to rain down uh, bread and quail. And then Moses goes to the people and he says, listen, at evening, when God starts providing for us in the wilderness, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. In other words, what's about to happen is going to show you that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And there's two things that we hear that they'll learn. Number one, who is this God who brought us out? Because back there in Pharaoh's territory, you know, Pharaoh didn't just oppress you and beat you up and take your stuff. He also claimed to be your God. So when they get to the wilderness, they're wondering, what's this? we know what that God's like. We know he's mean, but he can provide bread. What's this God like? They're going to find that out through what happens. But secondly, you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out. In other words, you're not there anymore. God wants to teach his people, you are in different territory. Different rules prevail. The way things worked back there, we're in a different place. The times have changed. Wake up to where you are with this God and get out of where you were with that God. And, you know, all of this sermon kind of unpacks this famous expression you may have heard, right, that it took one day to get Israel out of Egypt. But it's going to take them 40 years in this wilderness school to get Egypt out of Israel. So this is the first lesson. What do we learn? Well, number one, first thing we learn is that this God gives daily bread in the wilderness. I, I teared up while we were singing earlier. Uh, you are for us. You are not against us. Right? Now, we know the end of the story, but Israel didn't know the end of the story. They're standing there in that sand dune, empty wasteland. They don't really know God very well. And a live option for them is that God has brought them here to kill them. They are asking, is God for us or is he against us? Right? 
And, and, and when you, you start to wonder yourself if you read the story, because it tells us five, in five different verses it says, uh, the Lord has heard your grumbling, which is usually bad news, right? Like if God hears you griping, he's usually ticked about it. And what they're told over and over again is, God has heard your grumbling, come close to him and get ready to see his glory. <laughs> this is not good. This sounds like Sodom and Gomorrah stuff. This sounds like you've been complaining and I'm about to deal with it, right? So they gather in the wilderness, they see the glory of the Lord, they're wondering if they're about to get smited, right here, if this is the end, which is their fear. And what does God say? The Lord speaks and he says, I have heard, I have heard you, and I will give. I have heard the grumbling of the people, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled, and then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. This God provides daily bread when it looks impossible. This God provides enough for today, forever, when you can't imagine how that's possible. This God can make bread fall from the sky for you. It's a dramatic lesson for Israel about the character of God. But notice it's daily bread, which they don't so much like that part. You know, they kind of prefer that it came like in big chunks that they could hold on to. But you notice how clever the Lord is. He designs the manna so that by noon the sun has melted it. Like you literally can't work past noon to get this stuff. And you can't keep it overnight because worms get in it. Like God is saying like, yeah, I can deliver you and like provide for you, but it's going to be on my schedule. And that means every day. And we can sense that they don't like this because they try to keep it anyways, and they wake up and it's rotten and it's got worms in it, which is pretty gross if you think about living in a tent in that desert, and you're like, ooh, look at all this bread, and then it's got worms in it the next day. That's disgusting, okay? God's teaching them something, right? You're going to have to depend on this miracle every day. I'm not going to do it once and then everything's okay. Every day, every day. And it tells us in the text right there in verse 21, morning by morning they gathered it. Morning by morning they encountered the miraculous provision of God on their behalf. And every day they're learning, our God gives, our God gives, our God gives, and we have to receive it. We can't secure it. We can't control it. We can't put it into our bank account and hope it gets the right return. It just shows up every day. Uh, Walter Brueggemann uh, says that surely, is there a quote, is there a quote there? Walter Brueggemann is a scholar who's, who's had a lot of influence on this particular sermon, and he says, this surely is bread from an economy Israel did not know or understand. They knew the Egyptian economy intimately, but not this. Bread given and not planned, received and not coerced, bread on someone else's terms. And they have to take it or leave it the way that God gives it. But secondly, when this God gives in the wilderness, there's enough for everyone. When this God gives, there's enough for everyone. The bread does this other funky thing. 
which is, you know, obviously, like, people are better and worse at stuff. So some of them are, like, better gatherers, and some of them are worse gatherers. And so presumably the better gatherers get more, right? They're out there, like, hustling, really hustling. Man, I've been so hungry getting into my little basket. And this guy over here is not quite as smart or whatever, and so he's getting a lot less. But at the end of the day, they measure it, and it's, it's basically all the same. The one who has much doesn't have too much, doesn't even have enough for tomorrow, And the one who has too little doesn't have too little, has no fear about making it to tomorrow morning. When God gives, when God wrecks their imaginations and say, you think you know how this thing works from Egypt, right? And don't you think that part of what they wanted to do was to set up their own little, like if you're, if when they were slaves in Egypt, I'm sure sometimes they saw the way the master was treated. You know, we've got cave drawings of like slave masters in Egypt and they're like being carried into the fields, you know, and they get set down in the fields and there's like a big meal for them and there are all these slaves, you know, like like laboring and it's terrible. And I bet some of those slaves thought, man, it would be really nice to be him. Right? It'd be really nice to be him. But but they can't do that. They're not allowed. It, it's impossible. The manna that they try to hoard rots. In fact, Ellen Davis, one Old Testament scholar, points out they were building these silos for Pharaoh so he, he could have more and more power by taking more and more of their stuff. And the first thing the Israelites do is try to make little silos out of their tents. Like, look, we can store it up here. But it doesn't work. It can't work. It's impossible. And they're learning every day, every single day. We have different gifts. We do different work. But God's taking care of all of us. And we can't. We aren't going to starve out here, but neither are we going to get one up on our brothers and sisters. Because when God gives, there's enough for everyone. And I think there's something really deep here going on. You know, in Leviticus 25, when God's telling them how to arrange their farmland policy, they're having trouble with it. And God says, do you know that the land is mine and you are just my tenants? Let's make that even a little bit harder. The land is mine and you are just my sharecroppers. The land is mine and you are my servants who work it at my permission. And that's good news for you, but don't you dare act like it belongs to you. And we know from elsewhere in the text that gleaning was one of the mechanisms whereby wealthy farmers in Israel had to leave the edges of their fields unharvested so that the poor and the refugee and the immigrant would harvest there. But you know the same word for gleaning is the word used over and over and over again in this passage for gathering. See, I think what, what Moses is doing is saying, don't get confused. As soon as you get a little more than you need, we get confused. We start thinking it's ours to do what we want with. And God wants to know, don't get confused. This wilderness is my farm and your gleaners in it. And that's good news because there will always be enough. You can always depend on me leaving those edges for you. But the moment you try to get one over on your neighbor, the moment you try to control, it goes away. In fact, it rots. So the Lord is teaching them God gives in the wilderness. He's teaching them that God gives enough for everyone. But he's also teaching them that when God gives, he gives rest. Now, we have thought about the Sabbath as Christians primarily in terms of a legal thing that Jesus gets rid of. So just set that to the side for a second. We'll come back to that and think about this. We're talking, how many days off do you think they got in Egypt? How many days off do you think Pharaoh gave his slaves? How many times do you think they got paid vacation 
when they were out there having to be told to throw their kids in the Nile. They're in the wilderness going, what is this God's character like? We don't know him. What is he like? He brought us in this wilderness to kill us. And then he gives us this weird bread stuff and we can only get it every day. What's going on? Right? And in the text, there's like this suspension because God doesn't tell him he's going to give him a day off. He just says, like, gather twice as much on Friday. Like, wait, so if we gather too much five days a week, we get worms. But on the sixth day, we're just supposed to gather twice. Come on, God. And so the leaders, they do it. And then they come to Moses because they're like, this isn't going to get worms in it, is it, Moses? You know, what's this God going to be like? Is he going to make us throw our kids in the river? We don't know. You know? And this is what Moses says when they're there wondering, what, where is, is the other shoe about to drop? This is what he says. This is what the Lord has commanded. This is the burdensome law that you have to keep. This is the regulation that you can never violate. Tomorrow is a day of rest. A Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you bake, boil what you boil today on Friday, and all that's left over can be laid aside till morning. So they laid it aside till morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, miracle of miracles. There were no worms in it, miracle of miracles. And because of that, Moses can say, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you won't find it in the field. So not only am I telling you to rest, I'm making it impossible for you to work. God is mandating a vacation day for people who have been oppressed and beat down by a God Pharaoh for whom work could never stop. It could never stop. If you have enough, you build more storehouses to fill those up. If those get filled up, you build another storehouse. You can fill those up. That's what life's like for Pharaoh. You know what God says? Take a day off. Just stop. There'll be enough bread. There'll be enough bread to get you through the day off, and there'll be enough bread on Monday. Can you imagine? And even here, we can see the way that they're imaginations are corrupted because they go out and they try to work anyways. And look what Moses says. I love this. My, uh, my friend Robbie Holt pointed me out, this out to me the other day. It, that Moses' rebuke is like a rebuke and then a reminder. Look how long, he says, will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? And then, see, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. This God is a God who calls us into a new way of being that is so good. That is such a gift. And think about it. If you're a slave and all you're used for is your labor, that means you are reducible to your labor. That means that Israelites probably walked out of Egypt with a complex. I am a bricklayer. I am how many bricks I can produce. I am defined by what I contribute to this machine. And what God says is, you are more than a bricklayer. You are more than a quota. You are made in my image. You get a day off just like everybody else in the community, and just like I took for myself when I made this thing. These are big lessons that Israel will unpack for the rest of their life in the land, but they get their first lessons right here in the wilderness. Okay, so what does that mean for us? Oh, first of all, let me just point this out. Uh, At the end, you know, when they get to the promised land after 40 years of manna, it stops. But right here in the passage we're told, Aaron says, and Moses says to Aaron, look, before we get done with this manna thing, take a bunch and put it in a jar and stick it wherever the Lord is worshipped. Because when we get into the promised land and this manna stops, we need to remember. We need to remember that God provides what we need today even when we can't see it. We need to remember that what he's given is so that all have enough when we forget. We need to remember that we can stop. When we forget. So put that manna in a jar and we're taking that with us. 
So how do we take this with us today? And I'm aware that, you know, a lot of times the way we think about the Old Testament, we're like, some of you are like, we have been talking about bread in the Old Testament for like 20 minutes. This is so weird. What is this about? You're uncomfortable. Old Testament is old. Leave it behind, you know. So I'm going to shape my application points around showing you how the New Testament takes this message and carries it in to the promised land. So first thing I think we can see is that Jesus invites us and commands us to continue to depend on daily bread, on daily provision. That's why when the disciples ask, Lord, how should we pray? He says, give us today our daily bread. See, Jesus grew up, he knew the Israel scriptures, he knew about manna in the wilderness, and he knows that you and I are going to have to be invited and taught to depend on God today for what we need today. And I want you to hear this morning that one simple application is just know this. God is for you. He is not against you. And he promises to provide for his people day by day, as they trust in him. And just like the Israelites, we don't always like the way that he provides, right? Like, I would prefer that he provide by giving me a high-paying job. Or I would prefer that he provide by radically changing my circumstances. But, But I would prefer that he give me an Egyptian solution to my bread problem. But here in the New Testament, Jesus is saying, we pray, we expect and learn to receive from God our daily provision. And not just physical provision, but social provision, emotional provision. Do you feel like you're beat down, like you can't go any further in your battle with depression or anxiety? Do you feel like you can't go any further with your family turmoil? The Lord invites you to depend on him and expect him to show up with just enough for today. It reminds me of my uh, friends in 12-step programs who tell me that before their feet hit the floor... They have to say, I struggle with alcoholism. Today, I'm going to win that struggle. Right? Today. Not yesterday. Not tomorrow. Not how am I going to get by the next three weeks without alcohol. How? Today. Twelve-hour periods. Right? And that's what God invites us to do. Depend on him every day. But secondly, when we depend on Jesus for daily bread, we are freed for risk to share. You see, Jesus actually doesn't invite you, each one of you, to pray for your daily bread. He invites us to pray for our daily bread. Right? And in Corinthians, this whole manna thing shows up again when Paul is trying to raise money for some poor folks in Jerusalem. And these uh, Corinthian people are wondering, Paul, how can we give this poor folks in Jerusalem? We don't have very much ourselves. We're not sure we can make it to next week. Why would we give to those poor people in Jerusalem? And Paul says two things. One, he says, remember Jesus. He was rich. He became poor for your sakes. God gives. That's the first thing Paul says. But then he says, I'm not trying to make you hard-pressed while others are let off the hook. Your abundance has been given you to supply their need now. So at a later time, their abundance will provide for your needs. In other words, God is telling us that when he provides manna today, in terms of physical, spiritual, emotional sustenance, whatever, he does not give each and every one enough for their daily needs. He gives all of us enough for all of our needs and invites us to share. In other words, God invites you and I to participate in the miracle that is because God provides, no one has too little. 
No one has too much. We get to be a part of the man of miracle. We're freed for service. Third, we get to take a break. People who know that Jesus can be depended on can rest. And I want to just say that it, you, some of us, I mean, it's, it's possible that some people here struggle with the opposite sin of laziness or something. You're off the hook for a few minutes, sorry. One of our biggest unacknowledged sins in this community, I'm, I'm convinced, is workaholism. Do you know, I, was just, I found these crazy stats. Do we have the stats? Who knows if I'm on point anymore? Uh, there were stats. 25% of employees with paid time off use all their vacation days. So one in four people, their business said, we'll pay you to stop. And they said, nah, I'm just going to keep working. And 15% took none of them. 15% worked through two weeks because they couldn't stop. This workaholism comes in different varieties. Some of you are in like high-powered jobs that make you feel powerful and strong. You know, and you feel good when you're successful and you feel secure when there's money in the bank. And so you just can't stop. There's always opportunities to work. There's always opportunities to get more. And what I want to tell you is if you can't stop, if you can't build rest into your routine, the God at the top of your economy is not Jesus Christ. It's Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh's the one who demands more and more and more and more and more. And Jesus is the one who says, let me welcome you into my rest. Right? And some of us, some of you in this church have come from very difficult economic backgrounds. And you know what it's like to not have enough food. And you don't ever want to go back to that. And you want to leave a legacy for your children. And you work hard to make sure that you can provide and contribute. And those are beautiful, wonderful, God-given desires. But let me just speak a word of grace to you. God is the one who takes care of your legacy. God is the one who takes care of your children. And the legacy that God wants is a people who can trust him. So don't feel like you have to hoard and scrap together. And get one over on your benevolent father who wants to give good gifts to his children. And then some of you are like me. You're missional workaholics. And you think if you don't show up to your you know, low-income neighborhood 60 hours a week, if you don't answer every knock on the door, if you don't take every day's opportunity for extra tutoring for your struggling student, if you don't work on that lesson plan just a little bit harder, if you don't fill in the blank, the world will die, everyone will go to hell or end up in grinding poverty, and it will just it'll just go to hell, right? And like most of us who are like get accolades in sort of the ministry community do in part because that's part of our team. We just can't stop. I tell you, if you can't stop, it isn't God at the top of that religious pyramid. It's some other idol. God doesn't need you. He rescued the world without you. You weren't up there on the cross with Jesus. He invites you to participate. Take a break. And I want to challenge this body to try to figure out what does it look like to take a day. Now listen, Jesus fulfills the law. So we're not allowed to go around and say, do this, do your day off this way. We're not allowed to do that. Okay, I'm not doing that. But what I am saying is, God himself thought it made sense to take a day off. Moses required it. Jesus spent time loving others on the Sabbath. The book of Hebrews tells us there's a Sabbath ahead that we're supposed to press into. We work more than anybody on the planet. Take a day off. Set time apart to be with God, not with Facebook, not with the tele, but with God and with others and with your family and your children. I have friends from med school who did this. It's very countercultural. You know, med school you can work. My friend Jonathan said, you know what? There's always more to do. There were tests on Monday. You could always study more. You never knew enough. But once we said, no, no, thus far, no further. This is the day, right? 
then God gave us this incredible gift, and it flows out in the week. So we can trust God to provide. We can we can share and participate in God's provision with others. We can take a break. But fourth and finally, and I can't skip this even though I'm running towards the end of my time, when we look at the New Testament, how do we carry Moses' uh, manna into the New Covenant? It's simply this. The better bread that God provides at just the right time is Jesus Christ. And in John 6, right after miraculously providing manna bread again for hungry people, he says, look at me. Look at me. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then a few verses later, for this is the will of God the Father that everyone who looks on me, the Son, and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. You know, the thing about the physical, tangible, daily day bread that God provides, eventually it runs out. Because everybody dies, right? I mean, you can live to a ripe old age in the wilderness on that day, but eventually... God doesn't do enough to keep you physically alive anymore, and you die. Here's the good news. The best bread has been provided in Jesus so that we no longer simply experience the exodus from oppression, but we experience the exodus out of everything that is against us. We are called out of the land, not just of slavery, but of sin and death. And when that day comes where physical sustenance no longer gets the job done and our eyelids close in death, those who are in Christ can know they will awake forever to life with him. Jesus has brought the best bread and he offers it to us. And because we have that confidence, we can trust him and we can share with one another and we can take a break. Close your eyes with me and let's pray. Now, as we pray, I want to just invite some of you. If you're sitting out there and you're thinking, I don't see this bread coming. I don't see. It feels like God's hanging me out to dry. It feels like I don't have enough. It feels like this is all just a pipe dream. Can I pray for you? Lord Jesus, we pray for those in our congregation who feel like they don't have enough who wonder where their next meal is coming from, who wonder how they're going to get through another week with this depression or with that family or with this addiction or with those set of circumstances. Lord, would you provide for them? Would you provide daily bread? And some of you maybe as you're hearing me speak have realized that the way you do work shows the idols that you worship. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but would you just name yourself in your heart? Lord, may you liberate us as a people from our idolatry, our idolatry that shows up in the way that we can't stop. Lord, would you give us rest in you? And Lord, if you listened to what I was saying up here and you thought, I have no idea what he's talking about because I have never actually tasted of that bread of life. I've never actually met that Jesus who forgives my sins and promises me eternal life in his name. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but would you name yourself in your heart? And Lord Jesus, I just pray that every single person in here who doesn't yet know you, that you would come down, Lord, by your spirit and be the bread of heaven for them. And bring them into faith with you. And give them hope for today and tomorrow and for life eternal live with you. Lord, we pray that they would meet you, the bread of life, today. We pray these things in your name. Amen.